You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 165. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. You have reached another Local Maximum. I'm really excited about today's episode, another Bitcoin episode today, an important Bitcoin episode. You're going to love our next guest, Peter McCormick, one of the most important Bitcoin podcasters out there. He interviews all the industry leaders in Bitcoin from the Winklevoss twins to Michael Saylor to uh, the CEOs of the top Bitcoin companies like BlockFi. And we're going to talk about a number of topics. But first of all, it's, I mean, it's probably no surprise that I have, you know, been focusing more and more on what's going on in the in the crypto sphere recently, I mean, I started focusing on the crypto sphere in, in Bitcoin when uh, when I first started the program. But it combines all the things that, that we talk about here in the local maximum, whether it's uh, you know engineering, thinking probabilistically to uh, you know to emerging technology, thinking about what the future is going to be, and uh, you know, hey, you know, also like <laughs> we're going to talk about today, like the newfound confidence that Bitcoin Bitcoiners have that. We're going to win, and I, I want to talk more about this on the future local maximum episodes because you know this is like the biggest fight of our generation. Essentially, is is going on in slow motion. Like at first, I'm like, oh, okay, it's a great investment, and then I go to, oh my god, it's it's going to change the world. Now I'm like, okay, this is like the final clash of civilizations. Like what you know the 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 system of fiat currency has gotten out of control. So anyway, I just spiraled out there with uh, all of all of the reasons why I, I love this topic and I want to talk about it more. Uh, but today, so today I, I've got uh, Peter McCormick started the, his uh, What Bitcoin Did podcast a few years ago. We're going to talk about like, you know, what it was like to start a Bitcoin podcast in 2017. We're going to talk about the fork wars dealing with, you know, when you jump into the Bitcoin uh, arena, <laughs> you 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 get uh, you know you get swarmed by a bunch of people, uh, usually smart people with very strong held opinions, and uh, it's um, it's it's a rough arena. I'll talk about I'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the tension between kind of the old school do it yourself Bitcoiners who you know want to uh, be in possession of a hundred percent of of their Bitcoin, and then you know the new applications out there like like BlockFi and, and so forth where, uh, you know, you can um, earn a rate of return or, you know, the question of, hey, is uh, is having a custodial service okay? Because, you know, not everyone can can hold their own keys. All those all those are, are questions that I think um, need to be further discussed. We're going to talk about it a little more today. And then finally, once again, I mentioned this before, why we think we're going to win, <laughs> the Bitcoiners, that is, and uh, why this is the new emerging global currency. Uh, okay, so with that, now we go to Bedford in the UK, proclaimed by today's guest as the Bitcoin capital of the world, the host of the What Bitcoin Did podcast. Peter McCormick, you've reached the local maximum. Welcome to the show. Max, good to see you, man. Thanks for having me on. Always great to have a fellow podcaster on the show. Uh, I, I've been listening to your podcast. Um, I mean, I'm sure I've heard it for, heard about it for a little longer, but I've kind of been rediscovering it, diving into it for the last few weeks. Uh, what Bitcoin did, you know, great work. I, I feel like 
you have some some really big guests, uh, some people like at the forefront of some of the the, the biggest Bitcoin companies. So and and they just have like fascinating things to say. It's not like you know you could invite some CEOs on, and I could I could imagine they're really boring, but they're they're not. You have some like really really fun discussions on that. Uh, so. Let's, um, I guess I just want to start by asking you a little bit about the, the podcast. I saw that you started it in, at the end of 2017. No, That's yeah, like October 17, er, I think. No, November. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed like, okay, mine started uh, like a few months after that. So, so not that far off. Um, there was some, the, there was some crazy stuff going on. Well, there's always crazy stuff going on in the Bitcoin space, but back then uh, there was some crazy, there must've been so much interest because we had that run up from in price from like 200 to, to 20,000 in, in 2017. We had those, those forks happening, which seemed so contentious uh, with like Bitcoin, Bitcoin cash. So tell me about like when, when you started the podcast was, were, were these issues like uh, at the forefront were, were, were there, did you see like a, a flurry of new interest? Like was was that what, what started or, or something else? Well, dude, the, the reason I started it is I, I, I mean, I first discovered a Bitcoin in 2013, but I didn't properly look at it, right? And I didn't really pay attention to it. I didn't know what it was. I just traded a little bit on like a trading website. So, and then when it crashed, I was like, oh, whatever. I forgot about it. And then I rediscovered it right at the back end of 16, start of 17. And, I was, and when I discovered it, I was on Coinbase. And it also had Ethereum there. I was like, oh, what is this stuff? And I was out of work. Yeah. My um, I used to work in advertising. My agency had kind of failed. Uh, we had eight great years. And then we just had a bad year. And rather than like try and keep it going, we decided just to wind it down and walk away with the money we'd made, which wasn't a lot, but it was enough to have a bit of breathing space. And so I was kind of like, I wasn't working, but I didn't need a job. And I was looking at this Bitcoin and Ethereum thing. I was like, oh, this kind of sounds interesting. And took a little bit of a deeper look and I just said to my dad, I said, look, I think I'm going to buy some of this. It looks interesting. And so I bought like it was about $30,000 worth at the time, which was quite a bold move. Yeah. And then I just kind of like, you know, couldn't stop looking at it. Like most people kind of went really deep bought every altcoin there was like at one point I probably had like 50 altcoins and everything started going up and going crazy. And you know, quickly that 30,000 became over 100,000, then over half a million, and it just all went crazy. But I I knew I didn't know what I was doing in the trading, and I didn't like it at all. And mm. I coincidentally, through a weird set of events, ended up getting to know this guy called Rich Roll, who's a podcaster. He's like this vegan athlete, um, ultra runner. And um, I was out in LA visiting him, and I said, look, I think I'm... I think I want to do a podcast. I like what you're doing. And I, I like your lifestyle. I think I want to do it. And he was like, okay, here's the equipment you need. And you need to go and watch the Pat Flynn course. And then, so I went on Amazon, bought the equipment and I pinged somebody. And three days later, I recorded my first interview. But what my problem was, is like, I'm, I'm not a smart person in terms of understanding economics or technical things. I'm, I'm more of a creative um, you know, I understand sales, I understand marketing, I understand storytelling. I don't really understand deep technical subjects. So I was like, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make the show where I get all these smart people on and I ask them questions. But I could have done with having the show for about a year before the fork stuff happened because I was, you know, all the people who are arguing about it had been in Bitcoin for a long time and they kind of understood the key issues. And I didn't. 
So I was just like this kind of like moron with a flamethrower <laughs> going around. That's like, like jumping into the deep end. But the, the before yeah. stuff is overwhelming, I think, for, for anybody. I get it now, though. Like if I was doing, if it happened again now, I would know my position. I would stick to it. But at the time, I was like, well, I see your point and I see your point and I don't really know which is right. And therefore, I was kind of like navigating all this stuff uh, whilst learning, you know, uh, as I went. But but the show, the show managed to consistently grow quite quickly from when I launched it. And I think the reason the show's always done well is, it, I mean, there's a number of reasons I would put to it. But one of the main reasons is just, I just get people on and say, look, I don't understand that. Can you explain it to me? And whilst there's a lot of, you know, technical and, you know, competent people out there i think there's a lot of people like me go feel the same because i always say look there's two types of podcasts out there there's there's the smart guy interviewing the smart guy there's lex friedman sat down with um eric weinstein and they're, they're like gonna sit and have a deep conversation about something and and i'm gonna understand 15 20 percent of it and then there's the the joe rogan side who gets a smart guy in and gets him to explain it and i always feel like i'm on that side i'm like I'm going to let you do the talking and get you to explain it. So, yeah, so I was – I what ended up happening is I got a lot of stick on Twitter. A lot of real hardcore Bitcoiners were you know, pressurizing me into certain directions, which I get now. But at the time, I was like, fuck you. I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. <laughs> but I was like, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it was a real kind of like baptism of fire. Um and looking back, it was yeah, it's like, it's like all of a crazy. sudden you have different teams asking you to join their team, uh-huh. and it's like, oh my god, this is gonna this is gonna create problem. I don't know what to do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so where, um, man, what? It, it's funny. Like, what ended up happening at the fork? I, I'm guessing you were just on. I guessing now, looking back, you're just on. You know, hey, plain Bitcoin side. We didn't need to fork. Is, is it that simple or? Well, it's kind of more complicated than that. Like, a lot of people still got like PTSD from that those forks. Those yeah. that that main fork could have been the end of Bitcoin. Um, mm. So, to explain to your audience, I don't know how much they know about Bitcoin, but I'll, I'll try and explain it the simplest way possible. Yeah, Bitcoin is like a it's a it's a financial system. It's a financial protocol, and essentially, I can send you Bitcoin, and you can send me Bitcoin. And when we're sending Bitcoin. It goes into something that's called a block. And most people, if they've heard of Bitcoin, would have heard of the blockchain. Well, essentially, it's exactly what it says. Each block builds on top of the next block and on top of the next block. And that's all that Bitcoin is, is a block of transactions on top of the next one. And from all those blocks, you can tell who has how much Bitcoin and who sent who to what. The thing about the block is, is it, at that time, it was one megabyte in size. It still is now, but there's this block weight thing, but that makes it more complicated. But let's just say it's one megabit in size. That means all the transactions use up little bits of data. Once you hit one megabyte, that block is full. And therefore, you can't get any more transactions into it. So you have to wait for the next one. And if there's a black backlog, you end up paying higher fees to get your transaction into the block. What... Let's say there's a second group of people. Let's call them the big blockers. Let's say there's two groups. There's right. a small block and the big blockers. The big blockers yeah. said, listen, we need Bitcoin to scale. We need it to be able to take on more transactions. So to do that, we need to increase the size of the blocks. We need to make it two megabytes or four megabytes because that means we can get more transactions in. The transactions will therefore be faster and they will be cheaper. 
So when you first hear that, you're like, well, that makes sense. Why wouldn't you right. want more transactions? Why wouldn't you want them faster and cheaper? But the people on the small block size would say, the power of Bitcoin is that it is decentralized. You can run a node. I can run it. Basically, you can have a copy of the blockchain. I can have a copy of the blockchain. Anyone can have a copy of the blockchain. And the great thing about that is it has this property called censorship resistance, which means if I want to send you Bitcoin, nobody can stop me. And if you want to send, if you want to send Bitcoin to WikiLeaks, who are censored by MasterCard and Visa and PayPal, you can still do it. The reason it can do that is because it's decentralized. The big threat to decentralized money is government. They're not liking it and wanting them want to switch it off. So the, one of the precursors to Bitcoin, something called DigiCash, that failed because it was centralized. Bitcoin is decentralized. So if you want to run a node, you can get a Raspberry Pi and an SSD um, uh, hard disk and a few other components, and you can plug it into your computer and you can download the blockchain. So the total data so far, I'd have to look it up, but the entire 12 month, the 12 year history of Bitcoin is around, I think it's around 380, 420 gigabytes. Hmm. So when you think that about it, everybody's transactions, all of mine, all of yours. From all, all of time. Them. Yeah. So what's really cool about that is that you can get a Satoshi one terabyte. messing around. Yeah. Well, you can get <laughs> a one terabyte. Um, SSD and a Raspberry Pi, and you can whip up a node. Now, if it was two megabytes, you may be creating, putting more data on there and accelerating the growth of that blockchain. You know, for example, uh, another cryptocurrency some of your listeners might have heard of is called Ethereum that has an sure. awful amount of data on its blockchain. And I think it's about four terabytes in size right now. That's going to be very difficult for anyone to run a node. So, the two sides were essentially one saying we need to focus on keeping Bitcoin decentralized and everything else, you know, forget about everything else. And another side saying, well, you know, we want to grow this for business. So this big war kind of happened. It went on for years and lots of disagreements. There came, there came a point where there was going to be a co kind of a compromise, but the compromise wasn't something the small blockers really liked. So in the end, um, there was a, a something called UASF, which people can look up. It's quite complicated. I won't get into it now. But that actually kind of stopped the fork happening. So what happened is Bitcoin carried on in one megabyte. Now, despite Bitcoin carrying on as one megabyte, other people can still go and create their own forks, and they did. We got Bitcoin Cash, and then we got Bitcoin SV, and we got Bitcoin Diamond and Platinum and all kinds of different Bitcoins. But the original Bitcoin stayed as one megabyte. Is that a good enough explanation? Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it's it's interesting to me because I, I remember at the time when you know I, I was like, okay, there's this there's this mainline Bitcoin, um, uh, you know, I, for for lack of better term, I don't know, Bitcoin Classic or mm -hmm. Bitcoin Core. Some people like I, I was like, okay, I'm going to stick with this as as you know from my technical experience i guess the, their strategy kind of makes sense to me but i wasn't sure there were like bitcoin cash supporters big blockers saying hey uh we're just a better technology we're more scalable and we're going to overtake them and so i'd have nightmares where like <laughs> you know maybe maybe that does happen and i was like scared of it i was like i, I don't know because you know i i kind of I, I i sort of picked one horse i mean i guess i have uh, you know some unforked 
some unforked coins, but still it's like, um, you know, I, I wasn't that sure of myself. And, and, you know, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of the Bitcoiners were absolutely sure that, that their side was going to win. See, I'm sure now, and maybe that's yeah. the benefit of hindsight, well, but yeah. like, I look at it now and I spent a lot of time trying to understand Bitcoin. You know, I've traveled around the world. I've been to Venezuela. I've been to other parts of South America. I've been to Asia. I was meant to go to Africa, but we had COVID lockdowns. But like, and I, I spent um, a lot of time getting to Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation, who talks about Bitcoin usage around the world. And what I realized, Bitcoin is, it's really important that Bitcoin stays as maximally decentralized as possible. There is no specific benchmark, but there is this directional thing. You know, directionally, it's trying to become more decentralized and it's trying to be maximally decentralized. And those compromises on block size were not worth it. That's not to say in the future it won't happen. But at the moment, you right now, Bitcoin is still working very, very well at one megabyte in size. So what, you know, I, I've covered, you know, Bitcoin use in, in Venezuela on this show. And one of the things I'm having trouble wrapping my head around, I, I've never been there, is like, how much are people actually using it? Because you know, I feel like a lot of people, you know, even the U.S. smart people are just like, oh, I can't be bothered. It's too complicated, blah, 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 even though it's like pretty easy on something like Coinbase these days. But like, um, you know, are, are, are a lot of people really just getting involved in it? I kind of I see the all the Bitcoin ATMs at the gas station and I'm like, well, well, who's using that? You know, yeah. I, you know, what, what, somebody must be. It's a good question. It's why I wanted to go out there, because you often hear Venezuela is the perfect use case for Bitcoin. I was like, well, I want to go and see it. I, w- I want to understand it. So I, I firstly yeah, went like out. You, you go there and you tell someone like, where can I get some Bitcoin? How, you know, what, like, and, and I'm, I'm not saying it's not something bad about like the average person on the street in Venezuela, but the average person on the street is just not going to know anywhere, I feel like. Well, look, it, it's a mixed picture. So I, yeah. I first went to Colombia and I went up to Cucuta, which is the border with Venezuela. I wanted to see these border towns because I heard they're crazy. And it, look, it was insane. Like every day people really? were piling over the border just to buy basic necessities, toilet roll, wow. biscuits, you know, uh, and female sanitary products because they can't get them within Venezuela. Right. Um, so that that was happening. Well, they're coming over to get work. Um, but basically the people coming over have just poor really fucking poor and struggling to get by i mean most of them are trying to get work on the smuggling routes basically uh the the, uh, the paramilitaries control the smuggling routes back into venezuela and people are trying to get jobs smuggling goods back because there are certain goods you're not allowed to bring across the border but i went into a class run by a charity and it was there to teach people about bitcoin which was fascinating but i knew pretty much nobody there was going to be using Bitcoin. Like some of them didn't have a phone or they were sharing phones or they didn't have data plans. So it's a valiant effort um, and it's a valiant idea. It just felt wrong. When I went into Venezuela itself, again, a mixed picture. When you go into the slums, absolutely no use. These people are living on a couple of dollars, a, you know, basically between three and $5 a month. Yeah, they've got absolutely, you know, a, a Bitcoin transaction right now in the first block is like $15 to, to actually process it. So it's no good. Where Bitcoin is useful right now is within the middle and upper classes. So I spent some time with a guy who runs a tech company. You know, he does okay in um, Venezuela uh, terms. What he does, he keeps all his money in Bitcoin. And then every week when he needs 
when he's run out of Bolivars, which is a local currency, he just transfers a bit of his Bitcoin into Bolivar. And he does he does that because he needs the Bolivar to spend, but he holds his money in Bitcoin because the Bolivar has you know has inflated so much. So that's what he can do. So there is definitely a use case there. There is a use case for people trading. And there is a use case for people getting money into the country. It's certainly being used. Um, but there are an awful lot of people who are very poor in Venezuela. And it just right now, I don't see it solving a problem for them straight away. The other thing is that it's not generally a culture of saving either. People earn and spend. Yeah, and most of the time they're thinking about, right, what can I earn? What meal am I going to get today? It's like very much like a hand to mouth. Mm. So it, it's it's not a no, it's not a yes. It's just a mixed picture. Right, right. Um, so uh, you mentioned before, like, you know, you were experiment, you were buying all these altcoins. Are, uh, well, I get the sense from like your website, you're, you're not still into them as much. Are you more sympathetic yeah. to the maximalist position or what, what changed your mind on that? I am. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I was kind of bullied at the first. Like, I say bullied, <laughs> jokingly. I got a lot. So when I was talking to a Bitcoin cash person about to do an interview, I got a lot of pressure again. And, and a lot of the time when I release shows where they weren't maybe a Bitcoin show, I would you know, get people saying, oh, you're just a shitcoin, blah, blah, blah. And I would say, no, yeah. no, all this technology is useful. And then God, I think it was, was it early 19, early 2019, maybe late 2018, I decided to just go Bitcoin only. Uh, just focus on Bitcoin. I also sold all my altcoins. I mean, I, I made and lost a lot of money in them as well. But there were a few things that kind of made sense to me with with these altcoins is that actually they don't need blockchains. You know, most of these mm. things do not need blockchains because they don't need to be decentralized or they so are decentralized. You're saying like the the use case might be legitimate, but the the application of the technology is just just unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you think about Bitcoin. What's Bitcoin trying to solve? It's trying to solve the problem of government money. And the main problem of government money is they just they can print it as much as they like. Yeah, we've seen it now during this pandemic. I mean, they've just approved another 1.9 trillion stimulus bill in the US, of which every person's meant to get like a $1,400 check, right? Yeah, 19. Uh, it's, what, is it? Yeah. yeah I, what, I, I, Fourteen hundred. At this place, it's like I, at this point, I'm like I'm not even mad. It's just like <laughs> it's just like fun bucks at this point. It's just. But that just one point, that one point nine trillion divided by yeah. whatever it is three hundred eighty million people is not what fourteen hundred dollars. It's about five thousand dollars or whatever. So there's obviously um, printing that money for a, 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 a other good a other means. And you know, I'm yeah. I'm listening to an audio book in my walks in the morning called "Where Money Dies." It's about what happened in Germany after World War One and. The collapse of the currency there, and you can you can certainly see some similarities. You know, you can't just keep printing money and not expect some form of inflation or future currency devaluation. So, I can't remember where I got to this point now. <laughs> oh yeah, so, so Bitcoin is trying to solve this problem, and the way you solve this problem is you have a fixed supply of money. If you have a fixed supply, you can't print it, and everybody understands the rules of the game. There's a fixed supply. So that's a really interesting project problem to solve. And actually, it, it solves in quite a simple and elegant way. You know, has the blockchain. That's a way of processing transactions. There's a way of cryptographically saving those. There's a way of decentralizing it by keeping the blocks full. We have proof of work in terms of mining um, uh, to provide sec security to the network. 
So it does it with all these elegant things, but it's actually quite simple. It is just money. In the end, it's just money. What a lot of these other altcoins are trying to do, many of them, they're trying to do a lot more complicated things, like with smart contracts that you, you know, put, I think they put on the blockchain. I'm not a technical person, but and what you tend to find, like so something like Ethereum, which you keep finding is like these smart contracts fail or they get hacked or someone does an exit scam. And I think it's because fundamentally those systems are just too complicated to put on a immutable blockchain. You know, immutable blockchain of money is a good thing. Yes, you have to take some responsibility with your Bitcoin. You have to secure it. You have to make sure when you're sending it to the next person, you've got the address correct. And it's quite simple. When you make something very complicated like Ethereum, you're creating this huge attack surface for people to just try and hack or steal from you. And it just happens so often. And also, it's just not meaningfully decentralized. Hmm. So th there was an episode that I really liked a few weeks ago that you did. This is related to what you just said. It's called uh, Why Bitcoin Wins. Um, I'm trying to remember what the guests were. Uh, um, oh, yeah. Gary. Gary V. and Robert Breedlove. Gary, right, right, right. And so that started the discussion on, on this podcast. And it was like, what if Bitcoin wins? And we concluded that, you know, it's not just a bunch of people getting rich or mm. a bunch of new tech at the point of scale. It's like basically a revolution of our whole society. And there's going to be a lot of pushback on that. And, and it's coming relatively soon. It's not, it's not like 50 years in the future. Uh, it's probably, probably not 20 years in the future. It's, it's probably closer than that. So, I mean, I don't expect you to predict the future, but I was like, what, what kind of massive changes should we be on the, on the lookout for here? How yeah, it's, think a, about it's a great question. There's a lot to unwrap there. Um, so I'm beyond the stage now of thinking Bitcoin can fail. I think it's, it succeeded. It already has succeeded. Um, you know, not every technology lasts forever, um, but I think it's, I already think it succeeded. Right. Um, is it still um, essentially some kind of like perpetual beta? You could argue that, but I think no. I think it's a, I think it's a close to a finished mm. product. It's being improved, but the job it's trying to do of creating censorship resistant money, it's done that, and it's got a very high uptime, um, and. Yeah, I mean, when you see Elon Musk investing 1.5 billion of Tesla's money, and you see Jack Dorsey investing 50 and then 170 million, and MicroStrategy putting hundreds of millions in, and then you see Goldman Sachs saying they're going to offer trading and Fidelity offering custody, this is a mature uh, community and it's a mature uh, industry, and it's uh, it's because the system is you know, very very uh, secure now. So. So now it's here, it's like, okay, where can it go? And there's two things to look at. Firstly, it's like, how big can it be? But also, I think you have to look at where does the pushback come from the state? So anyone enjoying like Bitcoin yeah. wants to find out more, I recommend a book called The Sovereign Individual. It's a fantastic book. Um, it kind of, it predicted Bitcoin and it talks about the information age when... Oh, yeah, so when it, it predates. It predates it Bitcoin, predates. But, 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 but predicts it as well. It predicts a... Uh, a, a digital form of cryptographic money. Um, we're entering that age now where anyone can really go and live anywhere they want in the world, kind of. Obviously, there's some restrictions. You can't go and live in North Korea. Getting in China is difficult. But, you know, if you want to go and work in China, you find a job, you probably can get there. But that also gives small states or small countries this kind of regulatory arbitrage where they can attract people in. Estonia has done it brilliantly with cryptocurrencies. Malta's done it. 
we're starting to kind of see it internally in the US with Wyoming and Miami and trying to offer different things. A lot of people during the latest election go, why the hell am I in San Francisco and get shouted at by crackheads? I, I can go and live in, <laughs> I can do my same job in Texas and get and pay no state tax. So we've got this so regular same change. thing. I mean, that's exactly what I just did. I mean, I'm in New Hampshire here. Right. I was in New York Lovely. City for 15 years and it was a party for 15 years. And the last year was like, party's over. And I know my friends are like doing some crypto stuff there and all, you know, I, stuff is like, uh, you know, um, you know, lots of websites are, are restricted because of the yeah. regulations. I must, I, I did something crazy rather than get a VPN. I took the train into New Jersey and I was using certain websites in like Jersey city, <laughs> the <laughs> coffee shop, like a uh, shape shift, I think. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Very no, it's, it's, yeah, so yeah, no, you're talking the, to one of them. The point I'm trying to get to is like, we've yeah. got this changing world now. Bitcoin isn't going away. It's here. Okay. Yeah. So we can talk about the next big battles and we can all, all talk about what it, what it will mean. The next big battle is the regulatory side. Um, now, hmm. The most hardened Bitcoiners will talk about the importance of privacy, and they're right. Yeah, we should and deserve to be able to transact privately, and there's so many reasons for that. Um, just basic as a basic human right, but also because you know certain uh, countries buying certain goods can get you arrested. Uh, buying a Bible in certain countries may get you arrested. Uh, making political contributions to charities or political parties could get you arrested. But we all deserve financial privacy, but we don't tend to have it. And it's usually under the guise that, well, you know, we, we need to be tracking in case you know, people are giving money to terrorists or funding crime. But whenever you look at actual statistics, it's a very, very small amount. But what's going to happen is I think the state is gradually, well, it depends on the state. I expect certain states, the likes, as, as happened in the Gary V. I I mean, he raised it. You know, your Russia's, your Brazil's, your India's, your China's to be very hostile towards Bitcoin. I just do because they're authoritarian. They're, they're authoritarian states, or they're more authoritarian than other places. But I expect them to uh, to be very hostile because why would they want to support an open protocol for money which they can't control? I mean, Putin is regarded uh, uh, as potentially the richest person in the world, but no one knows where his wealth is. Right? Why would he support an open protocol for money? China, for obvious reasons, would never support an, uh, an open protocol for money. Brazil, potentially, yes, no. But what we've got is places like the US and Europe and UK, rather than banning it because it's, it's a bit more difficult now. You know, there's certain arguments that you know, code is free speech. And why would you ban code? Um, they certainly might make it a bit more difficult. They might require more stringent KYC uh, implementations. Uh, they might uh, uh, force people not to be able to use certain things like coin joins, which allows you to ob obfuscate your transactions. Yeah, there might be certain things they do like that that make it just more and more difficult to use. But Bitcoin has fought many battles, and I think it would clear that battle anyway, because I think other nations will go. I mean, the smart move for a small nation right now is to put Bitcoin on its balance, uh, sorry, hold Bitcoin in its reserves and say, we're open to supporting Bitcoin. And then going public, it become it become far wealthier nation once it has. But if we get over those hurdles, how far can this go? I don't know. Honestly, I'd be guessing. Um, I don't know if we have, end up in two worlds. We end up with the uh, a bit like when you have those dystopian future films where it's like 
there's the red half the world's red and half half's blue and they're at war um mm. i don't know if we're going to end up like that where half the world adopts and uses bitcoin and the other doesn't and you have china and russia transacting using you know a digital yuan and you know whatever and 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 you have half the world who's adopted bitcoin or you have this mix of dollar bitcoin i, I really don't know what i do know what i do expect is bitcoin is like gravity and it will continue to suck people in because once you've once you've hodled hard money and you've you've come to what understand what hard money means and you've because it doesn't, it's, it's like it's going to sound hyperbolic, right? And somebody listening to this might be like, "Oh, he's chatting bollocks." But there is a reality. Once you hold a hard money like Bitcoin, you don't want to let it go. And the reason yeah. you don't want to let it go is because you know it's pristine collateral. You know it'll be worth a lot more in the future. So you become a little bit more wiser about your spending habits. You can become a little bit more considerate, and therefore you become a little bit more considerate about other things. I mean, it has for me. So yeah, I see yeah. that. So I would just say I expect it continue to grow, uh, continue to draw people in like gravity, as I said. But how big it can go, I don't know. Can it be the world reserve? Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what world reserve means. I know it's my reserve, and I've got friends who use it as a reserve, and I know it's the reserve for my company. Um, you know, I, I, but but does it become the world reserve? I don't know. How do you think about you know uh, people who want to go? Uh, you know, all in on Bitcoin or be Bitcoin hodlers. And then, you know, you always hear this phrase, you know, not your keys, not your coin. But it, it seems to me like everybody holding their own keys is, um, it's it's quite a big responsibility. You might want to lend it out. I mean, I know you have, have had people on from from uh, BlockFi and, and Abra where, you know, you could you could lend it out and make more, and then there are some people online saying, "Well, you shouldn't do that because then you don't, you know, someone else has custody." How do you? What's your? Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, another really good question. So, for again, anyone listening who doesn't know this, not your keys, not your coin term. So, with Bitcoin, there's no customer service, there's no call center, there's a if you if you've sent a transaction to somebody by mistake, there's no you know chargebacks. Um, you become self-sovereign, you hold sovereignty over your money, but you hold responsibility over it. So once you've got that Bitcoin and you're holding it, you are responsible for it. Now, you've got a couple of options. If you buy a Coinbase and leave it on Coinbase, they are sovereign over your money. It, it is yours, it's, but it's essentially an IOU until you take it out. Um, the way you take it out is you, you hold it in a hardware wallet or you hold it in an external wallet of some kind. Yeah, whether that's multi-sig or whatever. What we refer to that in the industry is once you've taken control of the Bitcoin, you know, once you've got it on your own hardware wallet or your own wallet somewhere, you are holding your private keys. When somebody else is holding for you, custody for you, you're not holding your private keys. So that's this is what we're talking about. Now, I don't think every single person from day one has to hold their private keys. If someone's listening to this and going, Do you know what I'm going to get into this Bitcoin? And they go on Coinbase and they buy 100 bucks of Bitcoin you know what, leave it on the Coinbase for now. Just leave it for now. And then go away and learn about Bitcoin and think, is this something you really want to get involved in and get involved in deeply? And then you need to learn about security. But if you get to the point where you're starting to you know, stack and build up a decent amount of Bitcoin, then you do want to hold your private keys. This, But, but like I say, it comes with some responsibility. You know, you have yeah. to have a way of backing those up. The next point that you've referred to is 
it's a company like BlockFi. So this is a kind of the company which allows you to lend your Bitcoin. You can send them your Bitcoin and they will lend it out and give you some interest. Or you can borrow money against your Bitcoin. Again, you send them some Bitcoin and they'll give you a loan. And when you repay the loan, you get your Bitcoin back. Highly controversial com companies. They split the community. Some people are saying, what is the point of giving your Bitcoin to another company to hold for you for 6% interest on a on an asset, pristine asset that goes up in value? What if what if that company goes bust? And you lose your Bitcoin. Now, back in, I, I think it was 2011, I'd have to check the year, an exchange called Mt. Gox went bust because 800,000 Bitcoin was stolen. And that was very traumatic for the Bitcoin very, community. Very traumatic. A lot of people lost a lot of Bitcoin and a lot of money. So there's again, there's a PTSD with this that people are like, hold your Bitcoin. I'm, I think any financial system needs borrowing and lending services. I think it's important. Um, there are different ways of doing it. I would never put all my Bitcoin with a BlockFi. I wouldn't even put over 20%. But I certainly am happy to put a certain amount with them. I trust the service. I think we've got much more mature uh, companies, a way of them custodying it and not losing your Bitcoin. I think, we, I think we're in a very different place. And right now I do trust them, but I'm always keeping an eye on it. You know, I'm always asking yeah. the CEO, Zach Prince, questions, always welcoming him on the show. I'm always listening to feedback. You know, it is a moving feast for me. I'm always keeping an eye on it. Because if something did happen to them and I lost that Bitcoin, obviously, I, I would I would be devastated. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I yeah, I've looked at it. I feel like the 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 chance of that happening for something like like BlockFi is is far lower. I mean, you know, but <laughs> again, it's like the uh, the Bitcoin Cash people when they say they're taking over. Like, I'm not a hundred percent sure that I'm right here. So, um, I think it's safe to like, you know. Uh, uh, spread around your investment a little bit. Yeah, um, and, and do your own research, as we always say. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so uh, we'll we'll start to wrap up. Uh, what's uh, what's in store for twenty twenty one for the What Bitcoin Did podcast? Uh, do you have any? Um, are there any topics that you'd like to cover that you haven't covered yet? Or any, uh, yeah. guess I've got. I mean just to keep growing you know i've just done yeah. my numbers for february it's seven hundred twenty-four thousand downloads so I'm like in my head i'm like i want to get to a million just just want to yeah. hit a million for a month as a, as a target yeah I um i want to break it out to a few bigger more mainstream guests i'd like to get eric weinstein on i'd like lex friedman on you know i'd like some you know jordan peterson sam harris all these big names yeah. i'd like to get them on and get their opinion or get them into a debate with some top bitcoiners because i think as part of this going mainstream, um, you know, that that's really important. Um, I'm growing what Bitcoin did into a platform. Um, I want to make it less about me and more about other voices as well, because, you know, I, I have one job, which is ask simple questions, but there are some really smart people who can provide you know, really good content in a different way. I want to make little audio documentary series that tell topics, like tell narrative stories. So, I don't know, just keep keep developing and growing the brand and expanding it. Um, and then I'm, I've got little side projects I do as well. Cool. Uh, all right. So as we wrap up, um, uh, do you have any last thoughts on this? And uh, where can people find your uh, podcast and website and all that? 
Well, thank you, thank you for having me on, Max. I um, really appreciate it. I'm, I don't usually like to do interviews because I, I think I'm better at asking questions than ask, answering them. But it's it's a good test. But I always feel I always feel like I'm not the best. But so thank you. I, for... I'm glad you chose to come on to to the local maximum. <laughs> well, I appreciate you having me on and giving me the chance. Um, look, if anyone's interested in Bitcoin and wants to learn about Bitcoin, I do have this podcast. It's what Bitcoin did. You can find it at whatbitcoindid.com. I've got a beginner's guide on there. And then just most weeks, I've just got different types of interviews from technical people or or um, uh, traders. So there's all different types. You'll find the content you like. And if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter. It's at Peter McCormack. And yeah, just thanks for having me on again, Max. I really enjoyed this. All right, Peter, thanks for coming on the show. No worries, buddy. You take care. All right. All of this will go on the show notes page at localmaxradio.com slash 165. We have a lot of stuff on deck for you. You know, if you want more crypto, I am planning on doing, I'm planning on a a couple of crypto related episodes. I'm planning on doing a solo show on decentralized finance, DeFi, I think the kids are calling it. Um, And that's uh, an important one to know. So I'll get to that. Uh, I also have a guest coming on to talk about timestamping uses in the blockchain. So we're, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a couple episodes of that. I'm not sure right now whether I'm going to do it all you know, next week and the week after, kind of uh, push them all together. Maybe that's a good idea or whether I want to space it out. I'm going to think about that a little more. Uh, in other emerging technology news, I have a great guest on augmented reality coming up for you very soon. And Aaron and I, in addition, are going to do another news update. We're going to talk about the fourth turning, which is really fascinating kind of, you know, historical uh, social idea that um, uh, Neil, it's, uh, it's, it's a book by Neil Howe and William Strauss that came out in the 90s that, uh, that uh, seemed to predict a lot of what's going on now. So we'll talk about like, you know, what their theory is. And yeah, there's the, I, I, you, sometimes I, I come on at the end of the show and I say, I don't know what we're going to talk about now. There's so many things coming up. And this is going to be a very exciting spring for the local maximum. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support the local maximum, sign up for exclusive content and their online community at maximum.locals.com. The local maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.